I personally think that you know, some people anchor on money. I sometimes wish I did because I feel like that's at least easy to measure. Um, but it's it's not what I anchor to. And, and I think instead, I think what I'm trying to anchor to is like something bigger. I'm not sure money's a part of it. Um, but I think like feeling like I am, you know, fulfilled in what I do, that I've built something cool, that people like sort of respect me and and I've done it in a way that shows at least some level of integrity I think is really important to me. Hi and welcome to the Sliced podcast where we share startup stories from founders, investors and CEOs from across the globe. A little bit about our platform, Startup Blog Post, is that we're a community where aspiring entrepreneurs and venture capital ecosystem stakeholders can share meaningful insights, engage with colleagues and peers, and stay informed. Hi, and welcome back to the Slice Podcast. I'm your host, Emily Ahrens. Today's guest is Lee Mayer, co-founder and CEO of Havenly. Havenly is a convenient, personal way to redecorate your home, room by room on any budget. Havenly is also the largest startup in the online interior design space. Hi, Lee. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to chat with you and learn more about your journey and about Havenly. This one sounds extra fun to me, so I'm excited to uh, dive right in. Awesome. Let's do it. Okay. So I guess to get started, would you mind telling me a little bit about kind of how you got started in your background. Are you a interior designer or did you take a different path straight out of school? So kind of start there. Yeah, so my background actually had nothing to do with interior design. I grew up in the finance and consulting world. Um, so worked at places like Bain. I then went to a private equity firm um, and worked on one of their portfolio companies. I went to Harvard Business School in between. Um, So really just sort of a more of a broad-based business background. So I really approach this more from the point of view of a consumer Uh than I did an interior designer. And I actually think that that was sort of helpful because I think in so many of these industries, you know, these industries can come up and, you know, they sort of lose a little bit of the connection between what the customer actually needs mm-hmm. and what they're delivering. And so, you know, our whole team, for the most part, while we do have, you know, some fantastic interior designers on our founding team, it was it was really like geared towards ensuring that we were really servicing the consumer in a material way. Awesome. Do you remember kind of your first realization that maybe entre- entrepreneurship was going to be for you? Well, you know, I don't know that I ever really thought entrepreneurship would be for me, to be perfectly Mm -hmm. honest. Like, I was sort of the person that always felt like I I wanted the, like, safe, highly compensated jobs. And, like, entrepreneurship felt neither safe nor is it highly compensated. Right. So, like, I think, to be perfectly honest, it was sort of on accident. So what ended up happening was the company I was working for went public. And after that, I was sort of like well, what do I do now? And I started to kind of apply to other jobs. At the time, I'd moved from New York City to Denver, Colorado. And in Denver, you know, Denver just didn't have as rich of a of a sort of a, a market um, in terms of like really, really interesting jobs that I thought would be 
um, great for my skill set. Unlike New York, where you where you have tons and tons of sort of like right. you know financing consulting jobs. Um, and so I think you know I was sort of like looking for the next thing. And then while I was looking for the next thing, you know, we were sort of like starting this, not even as a, like a starting thing, more as a like, oh, wouldn't this be fun? Um, mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden one day I woke up and I realized I was no longer looking for other jobs and I was working on this thing. Uh, and so, you know, it was almost like accidental that way. Mm-hmm. In some ways I'm glad it was because I think if I, if I had actually sat down and think about it, like, I don't you know, I'm, I don't know that I, I'm so risk averse. I don't know that I would have like made that decision. So it was actually sort of a, a real benefit that it was sort of almost accidental. Yeah. And then, you know, accidentally and kind of stumbling into it, was it out of something you were experiencing personally in the, in the interior design space that kind of prompted you to think about this? Yeah. I mean, I'd moved, right. So I moved from, as mentioned, New York city to Denver in New York City, you have very, very expensive, very small apartments. Correct. In Denver, particularly at the time, you get a ton of space and it's not a very expensive place to live. And so you get like all of these bedrooms and all of these living rooms and all of these square footage. And I think at the time I was like, oh, I'm an adult. Like, I'm so excited to have my first large home. Um, I really wanted to look and reflect me. And no one was really helping me out. Um, I found it to be a really hard thing to put together myself. I was working a lot at the time and like, just like, you know, trolling through pages and pages and pages of products and like trying to figure out what goes with what was really challenging for me. Mm -hmm. But it was like so interesting. I was like willing to drop thousands of dollars right then. Right. Like when you're buying furniture, you're like, okay, I got to get the sofa and the rug and the coffee table. You know, you're like ready. You've got your credit card in hand. You're like super ready. But like, my budget was too small for traditional interior designers and then doing it myself was actually really, I found really hard. And so that was sort of like what, you know, what really perpetuated or I should say like drove the initial thought process around Haley. Yeah. I, um, I can totally see that. My sister, I feel like has an eye for things like this. I, don't necessarily feel that way. I feel like I more align with what you were describing of it's almost overwhelming how many options there can be when you're looking to decorate. And I think you can get, you know, you look at social media, especially now these days, and you see like somebody's gorgeous, like two bedroom apartment in Manhattan. And you're like, oh, I'll just have mine look like that. That'll just be what I do. But it's not as easy to recreate. So I think that's definitely a pain point that people have felt, myself included. Um, So speaking of sisters, it looks like you founded Havenly with your sister. Yeah, so Em and I started Havenly together. Um, she is actually far less risk averse than I am, which is sort of funny. So she was like in it from the get go, um, like super. I think she was super instrumental in like getting me off the fence a little bit because she was so like bullish on just right. kind of starting companies and. Um, and so, yeah, it was super fun. And, you know, Emily's not still, she's no longer still with the company. She's obviously still my sister. Um, (laughs) but since then she started another company. So she's like, this is like like her passion and what she loves to be good at. That's so neat. So do you feel like you probably, you brought more of like the business acumen side of things? Well, I don't know. I think we, I think we did a lot together, 
Um, and I, I don't know that it's like, it's always as clean cut as like, oh, one co-founder does this well and mm-hmm. one co-founder does the other. Because it really is in the early days, it's just a like all hands on deck, everyone does everything approach, right? Right. Um, and so I think, you know, I think the benefit of working with like someone you know really well, like a sibling or a close friend is, you know, when you start a company, there's so much to do. And it kind of like, it makes like the shorthand you develop with a sibling or the shorthand you develop with a close friend is actually really instrumental because you don't have to like explain all the things you can just sort of be like in the morning like you do this I do this cool cool and then you go and like it's done in a way that you know everyone sort of understands um, because I know my sister and I kind of know what she would, would she would, if she were to do this, I, I know what she would go do. Right. And like, so mm-hmm. I think it's actually somewhat helpful to have that. That doesn't mean you can't start a, by the way, doesn't, by no means am I saying that you can't start a company without having a sibling, you know, a sibling <laughs> or a really close friend that you've known for years. But just that like, it was actually in some, in some ways advantageous at the very beginning. That's so neat. Absolutely. There's definitely a level of comfortability with a, with a family member that's um, hard to replicate. I'll say that. So uh, what was your experience like fundraising? Any memorable wins or rejections? Yeah, we get rejected all the time. Okay. Um, I think I've, I've said this before in public, but it's, I think we got like 140 no's before we got our first yes. Um, wow. It was a lot. Um and I think one, you know, one of the things that I learned a lot during that process was just, it's so hard when you start a company because you take everything personally. It feels like a rejection of you as a person. Mm-hmm. And I think it really built, I think for someone like myself, um, and I think a lot of us are like this, like we just don't have context for that level of rejection. Like typically most of us, you know, we've done well in school, we've done well at work, you know, we're like, we're people that like, you know, we've, we've grown used to and accustomed to being successful. And I think like, you know, the fundraising process, the first time you go through the fundraising process, you are bound to get some no's. And, you know, the amount of no's that we got, I mean, I I say this all the time, but I'm like, think about that in any other context of your life. Like you ask 140 people out and they all say no like you know you just you just don't have like a concept of that level of scale of of rejection and so it really does teach you some things like it teaches you how to kind of separate yourself from the process it teaches you to like be really sort of self-critical like Mm -hmm. but like without it being personal so like why are they rejecting me what is going on Mm -hmm. What, what should I take from this and it also by the way teaches you like it doesn't hurt you when someone says no, like, it's like, oh, okay. Like now I feel, I used to be the type of person that like wouldn't enter anything unless I knew I would, you know, sort of get a yes or like I'd be successful at it. And now it's like, whatever, what's the worst that can happen? They can say no. Right. And it it really just teaches you how to sort of think in your skin quite a bit. Right. Like after that 139th, the 140th, it wasn't so bad. Yeah, totally. I mean, honestly, after one or two, three wasn't that bad. You know what I mean? It just gets easier and easier. Right. But you did end up getting some yeses. And you guys Mm -hmm. have almost, what, $86 in funding now? Is that correct? 
I don't know where that number comes from. I know it's like somewhere on PitchBook, but that's not a number that I identify with. Oh. Um, so publicly announced, um, yes. we've only raised 58, I believe. I find that still very impressive. And that's still a lot of yeses. Yes. Uh, so yes, yeah, so we've gotten um, we've definitely raised a decent amount of funding along the way, um, and then you know I think the one thing I always say is like funding ends up being this like benchmark in this world sometimes like oh my gosh you raised so much money but like the one thing I always tell people is like just remember that when you hear someone raise funding all it means is they're really unprofitable <laughs> um, the real the real prize is like exiting or building a huge business right so like. You know, the thing that I would sort of, I always caution other entrepreneurs to think about is like, look, like, you know, fundraising isn't the goal, building a large business that, you know, makes you and your employees a lot of money is the goal and building a sustainable brand or building like a fantastic product is the goal. So like, I recognize it's like an external benchmark that people look at, um, but, you know, I, I always encourage people to be like, what are you really trying to do here? Because right. you can get lost in the noise. Right. Well, speaking of fantastic product, I guess I don't want to glaze over this for our listeners who may not know. Could you kind of walk them through really what is Havenly to the consumer and like how they would find use in it? Yeah. So the best way of putting it is we're just we're interior design and we use technology to make it really accessible, affordable, delightful, and easy. And so there are kind of a couple of ways that you can interact with us. The first is we, you know, you can go online and you can work with a designer directly online and they sort of help you find the things that make the most sense for your space. You can then model it um, in 3D. So you can sort of like look at it like a photoreal visual. You can shop for everything directly from your design. So it's intended to be like a really easy way to shop for your home. I think, you know, the other thing that we do is we actually now have an in-home product. So we're actually like, you know, more of a traditional designer in that way where we come into your home, we look at it, we help you out. Um, And then, you know, you can also shop. We have our own product lines now. So you can actually also just shop from like our designer favorite products as well. Oh, that's so fun. That's great. That's so exciting. How would you feel when you kind of you take a step back? How would you say your view of being an entrepreneur and what that means has changed over the years? You know, I think when you first so <laughs> there's like this like mythos around being an entrepreneur, right? Like people mm-hmm. think it's you know, they imagine like Mark Zuckerberg in the hoodie or Elon Musk in his crazy tweets and like you know, it's this sort of idea that you have to be this like kind of crazy visionary person that dropped out mm-hmm. of Harvard and, 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 you know, all of the attendant things that come with that. So if your vision of an entrepreneur is Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg, you're probably thinking about a white male. You're probably thinking about, you know, someone who has a lot of access to privilege, someone who has, you know, like there's just like a lot of these things that, you know, frankly, not all of us are white men and not all of us are right. like, you know, kind of willing to tweet crazy things and you know and right. and think that that like the reality is like there are tons hundreds and hundreds and thousands of entrepreneurs every day that start their businesses and sometimes we call them entrepreneurs and sometimes we call them small business owners so my father is technically an entrepreneur he calls them small business owners. Like he's just, you know, I think to be perfectly honest, like anyone can go out there and start a business. And if you're willing to work hard enough at it and then you have a little bit of luck on the way, 
you don't need to wear hoodies and jeans or tweet crazy things or build rockets. Like you can, right. you can actually start a company um, and build a fantastic product and gain an audience and grow revenue and raise money and do all of the things even without sort of looking and feeling like, you know, some of the archetypes that get sort of pulled up in the news. And I think that that's been helpful to me. It's been helpful, I think, over the last couple of years to see different types of people be successful entrepreneurs um, so that we sort of break that pattern of only identifying with, you know, sort of the Caucasian white male, um, et cetera. Nice. Yeah. Well, I am curious what you, your thoughts on kind of how this industry has changed maybe since you started what, 2014, right? And kind of up until now, for instance, I was actually just purchasing something off of Target. It mm-hmm. was a TV stand. And I was able to do that like AI thing where you can see the TV stand in your yeah. living room or whatever. Um, and so do you guys feel like you were kind of ahead of that curve? And was it hard to get people to really see why you were doing what you were doing? Because I feel like things have progressed, you know, significantly since 2014. Yeah, things have progressed over the last few years. Like, I think a couple of things. So first, you know, what's funny about furniture and furnishings is actually e-commerce as a percentage of total spend in the category was really low. So prior to the pandemic, Mm -hmm. it was one of the lowest penetrated e-commerce categories because, you know, people um, want to, you know, traditionally people want to sort of see things themselves. They want to sit on it. Um, in general, it's sort of an older category. So in other words, people come to furniture later in life. So you typically, That's your true. years of spending on furniture tend to be in your late 30s into your 40s. And so what was interesting is the millennial generation, which was so instrumental in, you know, sort of transforming other categories into being digital first, hadn't really, again, pre-pandemic, hadn't really reached that critical mass in the furniture buying space. Mm-hmm. What happened over COVID is first, you had to digitize really quickly because there was no brick and mortar. And then second, I think this generation that was actually putting off home ownership, that was moving into smaller spaces in, in higher urban areas, that trend started to reverse itself. And and so this generation that's so digital first and looking for kind of cool tools and technology to buy things online started to really consider home in a different way. And as a result, you know, in the pandemic and then as we've kind of grown out of the pandemic, more and more people buy things online, more and more people buy things online. And there's a lot of tooling around it because like that's, you know, something that people are trying to fix. Um, And, you know, as a result, I think you're seeing a lot of sort of traditional retailers really think differently about how you service your consumer online because you're seeing so much more of it happen. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, from our perspective, like, has it changed? Of course, a tremendous amount. I think what's been cool to see is like now this, you know, being online and all of the tools sort of surrounding buying online is, um, you know, have been developed and and are being developed and are being used. And I think that that's just like such a cool thing to see Mm -hmm. um, because it's, you know, it's something that I think we've been predicting since 2015 when we like first raised our first round of funding. Um, and it really feels like it kind of came into fruition, um, you know, yeah, last year. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so when you use Havenly, you don't have to do your whole apartment if you didn't want to. You could just go room by room, right? Yeah. Yeah. You can do like small parts of rooms. You can do the whole room. We're pretty flexible. I'm also curious, just out of my own curiosity, is there, would you say a room that most people, like what would you say is a room that most people need help with? It's usually the living room is where people start. Um, because I mean, when you think about it, that's like where you spend a lot of your time. Like, most time. That's true. And it's also, it's a public room. So right. it's the room where you're entertaining. It's the room where you're spending time as a family. Um, and then we see people go into bedrooms and dining rooms and things of that nature. But, but it's almost the living room is the, like, the, I think the largest, um, the largest proportion of the business we do. Yeah. Technically the heart of the home, I suppose. Yeah, yeah exactly. If you were to start another startup or a company, would you stay in this industry? That's a good question. Um, You know, I think personally, I really love the consumer space. Um, I love brands. I love consumer brands. I love being able to draw that direct line between delighting the customer and doing well as a company. And I think that that's most well done in sort of like consumer driven applications or consumer driven products. That being said, I think home is extremely hard to play in. Um, But I think like fundamentally, it's like a really, really big category with a lot of opportunity. So, you know, the answer is probably like, I don't really know. Um, But I do think like consumer in general, in fact, I do, I do some investing now myself and I think for the most part, I tend to stick to consumer-driven companies. Mm-hmm. That's so neat. If you weren't doing what you're doing now, do you think you would be back in New York? You know, maybe. I think I think that's certainly like, you know, when I looked at my life when I was graduating from, say, business school or college, like I had never imagined leaving New York City. Um, you know, it just feels like the center of the world. And in some ways, it kind of is the center of the world still. Yeah. Um, but you know, listen, like, I think as you get older and you have families and you look at other, your, your priorities change a little bit. Certainly I can imagine a space in which I don't know if I'd have moved to Denver if I hadn't sort of had like the trajectory here that I had, but like, you know, I could see, I could have seen myself moving somewhere else that was, you know, less frenetic than, than New York city. Right. If you could go back and redo anything in your journey up to this point, what would it be and why? That's a good question. Um, Gosh, so many things. (laughs) I mean, you know, it's funny. Like there's this philosophy that I try and adopt sometimes unsuccessfully, which is like, you know, everything you did right or wrong got you to this point. And if you're happy with where you are, you know, you really shouldn't regret or like want to redo things Mm -hmm. that being said like you know I love that there are people that are zen enough to feel that way I don't know that I'm one of them (laughs) like I'm always constantly like man I wish I would have done that you know I think I think just largely I'll say them in lessons learned or or things that I tell other entrepreneurs but I think the first is I wish I really would have valued and potentially as a result hired more senior experienced people um, at the beginning. 
And so the, the reason I say this is because I think typically, at least for me, when we started up, what we had was we had limited cash, right? So we hired pretty inexpensive people. And so we weren't thinking, you know, even at the like very top, like we weren't really thinking about whether or not the person's like a great fit. We were like, okay, we can probably afford this person. Just looking for the help. Yeah. And it was, it was much more based on, and so like, you know, I think what was a bummer about sometimes we got lucky and we got great people, but overwhelmingly we found people that like really weren't pushing the company along. And so I had to do a lot of it or Emily, my sister had to do a lot of it. Right. And I really do think if we'd gotten a better team at the get-go, we would have been further along than we were. Mm -hmm. I think the second thing that I wish I'd done is like held my center a little bit. When you first start a company or really you do anything in life and you're young, everyone gives you advice, which is so great. And they're really generous with like their opinions. But the problem is like, they don't know what, you know, they don't spend the time and, you know, they don't live and breathe it the way you do. And I think Mm -hmm. in some ways, like the best way of approaching advice, particularly from smart people is, okay, let me hear this. Let me see how it resonates with me. And then let me take my learnings, not let me blindly follow it. Mm -hmm. And as a result, I think of following other people's advice, Sometimes they got into situations where like, you know, things weren't working out, but the hard part is it was, I just, you know, you didn't even have the like, if it, if it had been my decision, I would have felt more like, okay, well, I did the best that I could have at the time. Instead, you kind of feel weird about it. Like, it's like, mm-hmm. oh, this was someone else told me to do this. And then you, you think right. about it and you're like, okay, over a 30 minute co- you know, coffee meeting, this person threw out this random advice and I took it like, who's the idiot? Me or him? Me, clearly, right? Like, and so I think in some ways, just like holding your center and feeling like you know a lot about, you know, you know the best about your business because you're living and breathing it um, and accepting that for what it is. Right. And well, that kind of brings me to my next question, which maybe you just answered, but I was going to say, you know, what is a piece of advice maybe you wish you knew when starting out or what would you tell somebody who's getting started and would it go back to that hiring aspect? You know, I think, I think, yes. I think, you know, there are some other things that I typically say, which is like, look, it's like, it's a long journey. Like, you know, entrepreneurship gets glamorized, but like, you know, it could be five, 10, 15 years before you really like get out of it. Um, and so like, make sure you've got the intestinal fortitude for it. And if you don't, by the way, it's okay. Not everyone needs to start a company. Um, and like, you know, I think just appreciate what that means. Like it means putting in a lot of hours. It means like sacrificing some things in your personal life. Right. And again, just like acknowledging that that's, that that's the reality is like going to be very helpful for you. Um, as you start out, I think, I think again, too often because it gets glamorized, you see people sort of almost get surprised, you know, a year in because they're sort of like in a place where, um, you know, they didn't expect it. They thought it would be all like magazine covers or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. it's not, there's a lot of grunt work involved. It's a lot of work. Um, now it's like the coolest gig ever if you can get through that. But, um, but you know, there's, yeah. there's a lot more to it. I think I'm, I'm sure a lot of first time founders experience that disillusionment almost of like, oh, this is going to be a lot harder than I thought. Yeah. So speaking of that, you know, would you say, what would you say was your biggest obstacle as a first time founder? Would it be that fundraising and, and that rejection? 
No, I think it's like you don't know the rules of the game, right? Mm-hmm. So fundraising is part of that. But like, there's a whole orthodoxy to starting companies that you sort of learn as you go through it. I mean, now you can get it. I think that content is available. So if you pay attention, you can learn it. Right. But there are all sorts of rules of this game. And it can be rules around fundraising and how you fundraise, rules around how you make connections, rules around what numbers you need to aim for, you know, even like rules around hypotheses around the business and like business models. And I think the hardest part as a first time founder is until you're sort of steeped in the culture, it's hard to actually know and feel them, like viscerally feel them. And I think that that's like, you know, it's, 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 again, fundraising falls into that. Like the way you fundraise is part of the rules of the game. Like, mm-hmm. and, and I think in some ways as a first time founder, you just don't have any context for it. You can ask people and they'll try and help you. It's not like anyone's trying to keep anything from you. It's just the reality is you learn the best when you're sort of in it. Right. And so, you know, anyway, so, you know, I think that's probably the the single biggest hard part about being a first time founder. (laughs) Yeah. Well, what aspirations do you have for yourself outside of business? Um, Well, (laughs) so for the most part, you know, I think I'm at that point in my life where a lot of my time is devoted to my family. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm actually pregnant, eight months pregnant right now. So, Oh, my gosh. Congrats. I'm going to be delivering another baby sometime soon. Oh my god! Um, so, um, so you know, that's really like I think, honestly, keeping up with the hours that we put in at work, and then and then ensuring that your family and your home life is like safe, stable, and fun. I think is you know the for a lot of people at my age, probably the majority of what we do. In a previous life, I used to love to do so many other things. <laughs> Um, but I, I feel like these days, uh, you know, life's been sort of in, in, in a good way, um, you know, surrounded sort of my, both my professional career and then, you know, just sort of making sure home is awesome and my kids are doing well. Yeah. It's a balancing act, you know? Yeah. I think, I think the best thing I'd say to people is like, when you start a company, like, you know, I hate, the, I hate the term work-life balance. Like it sort of presumes that like you're either working or you're living, which is like not <laughs> how I think about it. I'm like, you know, you're living at work too. Um, I've never thought of it that way. That's I funny. know. And so, you know, I always say like, it's more about like aligning your personal and professional lives. And like, look, sometimes your personal life takes precedence. Mm-hmm. And sometimes your professional life takes precedence and you have to be flexible to both. And then what that means, though, is like when you're in a moment where your personal life needs to or you want to have your personal life take precedence, don't start a company. Like don't don't work right. for a company. You know, don't do something that requires you to work 80, 90 or 100 hour weeks. And then vice versa, like if you're, you know, if you're really in a spot where like your your professional career like needs a lot of attention, like really think about the personal commitments you're taking on as well. Um, And that's, I think, the best way that you can sort of make it all, make it all work. No one does it perfectly. You're going to screw it up. But like, you know, at least having that rubric in your head, I think is very helpful. Yeah. Well, congrats again. And uh, next question is, when will you know that you've lived a successful life and had a successful career? Gosh, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> that's a, a hard question. question. <laughs> yeah, it's like a, that's a hard question. I feel like, you know, I personally think that 
you know, some people anchor on money. I sometimes wish I did because I feel like that's at least easy to measure. Um, but it's it's not what I anchor to. And, and I think instead, I think what I'm trying to anchor to is like something bigger than that. Sure, money's a part of it. Um, but I think like feeling like I am, you know, fulfilled in what I do, that I've built something cool, that people like sort of respect me and and I've done it in a way that shows at least some level of integrity, I think is really important to me. And then also like building a life where I have people that I really like being around and, you know, a family that seems satisfied and is successful on their own, I think is really important too. And so I don't know if you ever like hit that moment where you're like, oh man, I'm really a success. <laughs> Regardless of like what happens with this company or anything else, I think it's more like just an evolution of like, am I happy? Am I, are the people around me happy? Are we contributing to the world in a meaningful way, et cetera, is mm-hmm. sort of what I try and anchor to a little bit. But again, wouldn't it be easier if I could be like, if I make X millions of dollars, I will be successful because then, then you just shoot for that, right? I know. You'd be surprised though. That's generally not the answer we get either. You know, I just, I know. it's I a know. little bit more than that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But to close this out, could you describe your journey thus far just using one word? Just using one word. Gosh, you guys have some good questions. Um, (laughs) Interesting. There you go. Love it. I did want to ask you, sorry, one last thing, sidebar. How did you land on Havenly? It was two bottles of wine and it was available for less than $3,000. Perfect. Took it. Love it. That's great. I think it's great. <laughs> yeah, kind of had the like, we like the spin on Haven and then Heavenly. And we I really like wanted it. a .com domain. Um, and then, yeah, we, we went through, I think, a couple bottles of wine and we landed on it. There Perfect. We well, it kind of works like, you know, creating your safe haven. Yeah, Heavenly yeah. Haven. You got it. Yeah. Well, is there anything else you'd like to add before I let you go, Lee? Anything about Havenly or about your journey? Anything at all? No, but this is super fun. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Sliced Podcast. If you're interested in sponsoring an episode of Sliced, please email newsroom at startupblogpost.com and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook.